the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we'll continue our reflection on the sanctity of human life. Kimberly Swenson, who is the director of Pathways Clinic in Washougal, Washington, she'll join me to talk about the work they are doing and the challenges they face in this post-row environment. We'll also uh, take a look at a new survey that says Americans are losing their generosity. Perhaps they're losing their capacity given the price of things. But anyway, we'll get into that later in the program as well. But first, we'll take a look at some of the day's news. Well, Oregon State Senator Lou Frederick and Senator Casey Jama have authored Senate Joint Resolution 26, which would temporarily suspend the people's kicker income tax return. Temporarily. That may cost many average income tax paying taxpayers as much as $900 on their refund, which would be available next year. Well, SJR 12 reads, proposes amendment to Oregon Constitution to cease requirement of returning surplus revenue to personal income taxpayers, refers proposed amendment to people for their approval or rejection at the next regular election. We all saw it coming. At some point, there'd be an effort to reverse what the people decided some years back. Well, the state has overcollected tax revenues by a record $3.7 billion dollars. This is above what was forecasted and outside the closed balanced budget of the last state budget cycle. Well, the voter enacted constitutional provision requires this overcollected funds to be returned to the taxpayers. Well, based on previous kicker refunds, this one would be about $900 for many average Oregonians by a, a rough estimate. So. Again, they cannot suspend it without uh, the people approving it, but the effort is being made. Also, the National Drug Helpline recently reported that Oregon has the worst drug problem in the United States. Overdose rates, the frequency of drug use and addiction, and the percentage of individual aged 12 and above who reported taking drugs in the previous year were all taken into account while ranking the 50 states in the research, which compiled data from a number of different sources. Drug issues in Oregon are the worst in the country. That's what they concluded. Well, based on an examination of information from the National Center for Health Statistics and the National Survey on Drug Use and Health 2018 to 2019, it was found that Oregon had the highest rates of uh, pain reliever consumption in the country at 4.56%. New York has the nation's lowest rate of painkiller misuse. And although Oregon was not ranked worst overall, it did receive very low grades in all categories. Utah got an 88 on a scale where zero is the worst and 100 is the best, while Oregon obtained a a dismal 43. Research conducted in the years 2018 and 19 by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration found that 19.84% of people aged 12 and above had used illicit drugs within the prior month. Nearly a quarter of all respondents, or 26 percent, reported using marijuana in the calendar year prior to the poll. Marijuana use remains illegal under federal law, despite the fact that it's been decriminalized in the state of Oregon. 
People between the ages of 18 and 25 had the greatest prevalence of its use. According to a similar study published by the Wallet Hub, Oregon ranks third in the U.S. for youth drug use and second for adult drug use. Well, on Thursday, Oregon Secretary of State Shamia Fagan released the results of an audit of Measure 110, the state's Drug Addiction Treatment and Recovery Act. According to Wallet Hub's research, Oregon has the highest number of people who need drug treatment but do not get it. However, auditors say that Fagan's request for help is a sign that something has to change because it's too soon to tell if Measure 110 is effective or not. I'm not sure it's too soon. It seems to me from the ballot when we voted on it, it would not be effective. And that's borne out. However, auditors say Fagan's request for help is a good sign. The auditors suggested a few changes, including ensuring uh, sure the program's benefits can be measured and requested the Oregon legislature uh, provide further um, attention to any flaws in the act. So we'll continue to follow that story as the legislature, as you know, is in session. Well, last month, Oregon's Environmental Quality Commission voted four to one to adopt California regulations that will start restricting the sale of gasoline powered motor vehicles in Oregon starting in 2026. By the end of the year, automobile manufacturers must deliver and offer for sale electric vehicles totaling at least 35% of their overall vehicle sales in Oregon. By 2035, that number will rise to 100%, at least in theory, resulting in a ban on vehicles powered by internal combustion engines. Now, it sounds like a great idea. You just um, swish the wand and it all happens, but it's not quite as simple as it sounds on paper. Although several commissions and uh, admitted that the 100% requirement will be unpopular and maybe impossible, DEQ staff reminded them that since Oregon began outsourcing its decision-making to tailpipe standards to California in 2005, Oregon policymakers no longer have any discretion to think for themselves. And after a brief discussion, the EQC meekly adopted California regulations exactly as approved in Sacramento. Commissioner Greg Addington from Klamath Falls raised multiple objections and voted against the rule, but the outcome was never in doubt. There were many fascinating elements of the decision. The most obvious is that EVs only comprise about 1% of all vehicles in Oregon, so the notion that 35% of vehicle sales will be electric three years from now is, well, laughable. Also, when 2016 arrives and the goal is not met, there will be no way for the DEQ to enforce it. The regulatory mandate is on vehicle manufacturers, not buyers. The government can't force us to buy cars we don't want, at least not yet. Even after the 100% requirement arrives in 2035, Oregon residents who want to buy gasoline-powered vehicles will have the option of buying from another state or going to the used car market. A major reason why so many buyers are reluctant to purchase an EV is that chargers are scarce. That problem is not going to be solved for a long time, as recent California experience has demonstrated. So it sounds good on paper, but the magic wand not available. In June of of 2021, I should say, the California Energy Commission announced that the state will need nearly 1.2 million public and shared private chargers by 2030 to meet the demands of the 7.5 million passenger plug-in EVs anticipated to be on California roads by, of course, mandate. As of uh, the date of that report, there are only 73,000 chargers, while implied a need for new chargers to be installed at the rate of 343 a day for the next nine years.
No magic wand for that either. At the end of September of 2022, there were not 79,023 public and shared private chargers in the state of California. The state had increased the number of chargers by 6,023 in 17 months when it needed to add 176,645. Well, Kate Brown may have thought she solved the problem with state legislation passed in 2016 and 2021, but she didn't. In fact, during her tenure as governor, Oregon's reliance on fossil fuels has actually gone up. And again, another problem uh, is that DEQ staff insist on calling EVs zero emission vehicles. But this is, of course, inaccurate. The electricity required to charge EVs has to come from somewhere and fossil fuels are essential to the maintenance of the electric grid. Charging an EV simply shifts um, uh, air pollution from the automobile tailpipe to industrial smokestacks at fossil fuel plants. According to the Oregon Department of Energy, coal and natural gas accounted for 45 percent of Oregon's electricity generation in 2012. By 2020, fossil fuel use had increased to 48 percent. The largest increase was in natural gas, which grew from 12 percent to 21.5 percent. Well, you see the nature of the problem, which isn't exactly going to um, change anytime soon. So making these uh Bold declarations doesn't actually solve a problem. It creates another one and certainly a difficulty for those who are trying to live according to the standards set by Salem, or should I say Sacramento. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, education is a key topic for both Republicans and Democrats, Oregon lawmakers, in the 2023 session as it began last week. But the parties and individual lawmakers vary widely in the scope of their focus. Well, legislation introduced so far this session runs the gamut from abolishing the Oregon Department of Education entirely to raising teacher salaries to addressing health issues. Well, a few of those bills that you might want to keep an eye on, abolishing the Oregon Department of Education, Senate Bill 243, sponsored by Senator Art Robinson, from Cave Junction would establish a task force to abolish the Oregon Department of Education, which um, would uh, the task force rather would uh, consist of five state representatives and five state senators. They would study and make recommendations related to the abolishment of the ODE. Another prohibiting COVID-19 immunization requirements, Senate Bill 641, sponsored by um, Senator Tim Knope, a Republican out of Bend, would forbid the Oregon Health Authority and the ODE from requiring immunizations against COVID-19 as a condition of attendance in any school, children's facility, or post-secondary institution of education. And then there's the uh, Senate Bill 550, the Computer Science Education Strategic Plan, sponsored by Senator Janine Salmon of Hillsboro, the Democrat, intended to develop students from the computer users to computer literate creators over the span of their education. The bill suggests that the ODE, uh, ODE, rather, the Department of Education, would develop the standards and make them equitably available to public school students. It asks the Department of Education to consult with the STEM Investment Council on the strategic plan. The plan would be developed by March of 2024. These have been proposed, not yet voted on or obviously passed. Another is identifying students in crisis. Senate Bill 2646, sponsored by Representative Tana Sanchez, a Democrat from Northeast Portland, would establish a program of um, uh, trans school employees on uh, signs and symptoms of different mental illnesses and 
child crises, including psychiatric or psychological disorder, depression, substance abuse disorder, uh, de-escalating mental health and substance use disorder crises. The bill would require school districts to designate mental health points of contact to coordinate and facilitate access for youth and their families to appropriate mental health resources and substance abuse disorder services. It would also help teach school employees when and how to refer youth and their families to their resources. Another House Bill 2690 would raise classified employee wages. Sponsored by uh, Representative Courtney Neron, of Democrat from Wilsonville, would require all classified school employees to be paid at least 10% more than the minimum wage. It also would require that they be paid no less than 15% over the minimum wage if the employee works directly with students with individualized education plans or who are enrolled in special education. The bill would also require that the certified educator salary would be no less than $60,000 per year if the certified employee works with students who have an IEP or are enrolled in special education, their salary would be at least 63000 So it's $3,000 more a year. It also would require school districts to index wage and salary amounts to inflation. House Bill 2618, how many school health practitioners are needed? Well, it's sponsored by Representative Susan McLean from Hillsborough and Senator Debbie Patterson from Salem, both Democrats, it would launch a study to look into determining the appropriate number of students on the uh, caseloads for certain school-based health practitioners. The study's focus would be on speech-language pathologists, occupational therapists, and physical therapists. And then a bill on college student debt and job insecurity, Senate Bill 262 and Senate Bill 263, address post-secondary education challenges that recent graduates are facing. Senate Bill 262 would uh, conduct a study on decreasing student debt. Senate Bill uh, 263 would conduct a study on how to improve employment opportunities. The studies would be conducted by the Higher Education Coordinating Commission, and it would need to submit findings to interim committees of the Legislative Assembly related to higher education by September 15th of next year. Then there's the College Student Food Insecurity, House Bill 2393, sponsored by Representative Maxine Dexter, a Democrat from Portland. It would require the Higher Education Coordinating Commission to study how to address food insecurity for students in post-secondary education institutions in Oregon. They would submit a report and recommendations based on their findings to the interim committee of the Legislative Assembly related to higher education by September 15th of next year. There's House Bill 2961, sponsored by Representative Ricky Ruiz, a Democrat from Gresham. It would put uh, put aside $5 million of the general fund to expand the scope and community reach of college access and success programs at public universities and community colleges. And finally, House Bill 2977, developing programs for behavioral health careers, sponsored by Representative High Pham, a Democrat from Hillsborough, and Representative Janelle Bynum, a Democrat from Clackamas. It would require the Higher Education Coordinating Commission in collaboration with the Oregon Health Authority to establish a grant program for higher education institutions to develop programs that prepare students to enter behavioral health jobs. It would designate scholarships and other tuition assistance for said students. The bill calls for appropriating $6 million of the general fund for this development. Well, in other news, former Vice President Mike Pence informed Congress on Tuesday, that's today, that he discovered documents bearing classified markings from his time as vice president 
in his Carmel, Indiana home on the 16th of January. Following the revelations, the classified documents from President Joe Biden's tenure as vice president were found in the Penn Biden Center think tank in William uh, Wilmington, Delaware home. Pence's team conducted searches of his Indiana home and the office of his political advocacy group, Advancing American Freedom. Well, according to his team, the former vice president informed the National Archives on the 18th that a small number of potential classified documents were found in two small boxes. Another two boxes contained copies of vice presidential papers. The National Archives then informed the FBI per standard procedure. Well, the uh, attorney for the former vice president, Greg Jacob, wrote to um, on January 18th, rather, to acting director Kate Dillon McClure of the White House Liaison Division, National Archives and Records Administration to inform her uh, of the papers containing classified markings. Well, after after the documents were the classified markings were discovered, they were immediately put into a safe, according to the Pence team. They were collected by the FBI at his home in Carmel, Indiana, on Thursday Evening, the 19th, Pence was in Washington, D.C. for the annual March for Life when the FBI collected said documents. His team said that although the documents bear classified markings, the Department of Justice or the agency that issued the documents will need to make a final determination on whether the documents are considered classified or not. The uh, former vice president um, said that he was not responsible for boxing up the papers. Others did that for him, but uh, felt compelled to check given the Attention given to the former vice president, former senator, sitting president and his um, president, all of whom have been found to have classified documents in their private spaces. Well, in other news, the entertainment movie sector has taken quite a financial hit these past few years. The Walt Disney Company alone (coughs) lost one hundred and twenty billion dollars in market value in twenty twenty two. Now, they most likely will not. Associate that with some of the statements they have made about their intentions in producing said entertainment. But nonetheless, according to the Epic Times, entertainment losses last year suppressed or rather surpassed those in other sectors, such as banking, which saw 14.5 percent drop and telecommunications, which witnessed an 11.2 percent decline in revenue. Major studios, streaming services, cable providers, broadcasters and other media groups lost a combined five hundred and forty two billion dollars. In market value in 2022. That's a 40% drop in market value overall. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with Kimberly Swenson. She's the director of Pathways Clinics in Washougal, Washington. We'll talk with her about the work they are doing, and it's incredible during this uh, Sanctity of Human Life week as we reflect on the impact of, of Roe versus Wade, its overturn, and what's next. Also, we'll take a look at whether, <clears throat> whether or not Americans are losing their generosity, <clears throat> as one study suggests. I was uh, talking about the entertainment movie sector, that it's taken quite a hit, a financial hit these last few years. To some extent, inflation does have a lot to do with it. Americans are tightening their belts and not spending as much on streaming platforms, nor are they returning to the theaters, though COVID also contributed to that happenstance. In the 30s, during the Great Depression, people would still go to the movies in spite of struggling financially. Of course, it was affordable back then. But then movies were a great way to escape the hard reality of their lives. And movies gave people hope for a better future. It was worth spending that nickel. Well, today, Hollywood is unable to attract the average consumer because it simply isn't making much content that's worth watching. 
Well, the general answer to why is that Hollywood no longer understands its audience and what it wants uh, to be um, the moral influencer instead of the product. Well, Hollywood is infected with anti-American bias, and part of this is because many in Hollywood are... Uh, don't think America is a good country. Another aspect affecting movie quality is foreign influence like China specifically has a financial and geopolitical stake in American films and has succeeded in stifling quality movies before they could be made. China doesn't have America's best interest at heart. TikTok, of course, is a, a perfect example. The version of the social media platform uses an algorithm to make academic or artistic achievements go viral to its uh, targeted, um, or I should say it is targeted to improve the aspirations of Chinese youth who use the platform. And by the way, it's not at all what you see here in the U.S. America's version tempts its users down the path of poor lifestyle choices, superficial dances, and has great, uh, greatly contributed to the mental health crisis among young people. So there's uh, quite a difference. Well, Hollywood's whole infrastructure has become a vehicle for a radical agenda. It pushes culturally destructive tropes about abortion, gender ideology, radical feminism, anti-family messages, critical race theory in the hopes of convincing a nation. Ironically, these uh, tropes often prove the opposite of Hollywood's message. The Marilyn Monroe remake, Blonde, shows an abortion and the trauma that caused Tar serves as an interesting projection of what leftists think a conservative is. And ultimately, the American people are tired of being force-fed an ideology they don't agree with. Hollywood, rather, is also guilty of beating the metaphorical dead horse when it comes to overdoing tropes until the genre is dried up. Whatever the cause, these issues are all coming home to roost. Hollywood A-listers yell and scream at common Americans for not liking their movies while forgetting that the movies they're making are a product for the common man. Hollywood is out of touch, compromised, and losing money hand over fist, which gives opportunity to uh, producers and creatives who will produce what the American people, or people in general, might be interested in seeing. Well, ex-FBI official who was involved in the Trump-Russia probe has been indicted for working on behalf of sanctioned Russian oligarch Charles McGonagall. A former FBI official involved in the investigation of Trump's ties to Russia has been charged with violation, or rather violating sanctions and collaborating with Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska. The Department of Justice announced, well, according to the federal prosecutors, McGonagall received concealed payments from a Russian intelligence officer in exchange for his help and having sanctions targeting uh, Deripaska's lifted. McGonagall is uh, being charged by the Federal District of Manhattan with additional counts relating to money laundering and conspiracy. He said he should have known better, um, but here you have it. Um, the shoe is on the other foot. Deripaska, a well-known aluminum magnet uh, and close friend of President Vladimir Putin, was reportedly a client of Paul Manafort, an attorney and former Trump presidential campaign consultant. He was recently the uh, subject of a 60-minute segment alongside other prominent Russian oligarchs known for laundering illicit funds through the European Union member country of Cyprus. According to the investigation, he arranged for a child uh, to, of his uh, to be born in the United States in an attempt to bypass the sanctions imposed on him and much more. Well, a coalition of 20 state and top conservative legal group is suing the uh, Biden administration over its recently expanded humanitarian parole program that allows tens of thousands of migrants from designated countries a month into the United States, arguing that the uh, 
The program is unlawful. The lawsuit filed by Texas and the American First Legal in the Southern District of Texas is joined by 19 additional states who are seeking to block the administration's parole program, which allows up to 30,000 migrants from Haiti, Nicaragua, Cuba and Venezuela into the U.S. every month. The administration announced the program for Venezuela in October, which allowed a limited number to fly directly into the U.S. as long as they had not entered illegally, had a sponsor in the U.S. already and passed certain checks. Well, earlier this month, the president announced that the program would be expanding to include Haitians, Nicaraguans and Cubans, and that the program would allow up to 30,000 a month into the U.S. It was announced alongside an expansion of Title 42 expulsions to include those nationalities. And New York Times opinion writer Rose Wong penned a piece earlier this week that discussed the um, the uh, faddish diversity, equity and inclusion uh, workplace training model. And she writes, and I'm quoting, DEI trainings are designed to help organizations become more welcoming to members of traditionally marginalized groups, advocate uh, uh, rather, advocates make bold promises. Diversity workshops can foster better intergroup relations, improve the retention of minority employees, close recruitment gaps, and so on. The only problem, there's little evidence that many of these initiatives actually work. End quote. Well, yes, this interesting admission was in the New York Times, the harbinger of all things woke and progressive. Well, their common sense take was Uh, Backed by the two largest studies of the effects of DEI training, as Wong points out, diversity training has been around in the workplace since the 1960s and has has, uh, had little to uh, navigate um, uh, and has had a negative effect uh, in the goals long term. In one of the studies, researchers um, Frank Dobbin and Alexandra Kalev noted that we have been speaking to employers around about this research for more than a decade with the message that diversity training is likely the most expensive and least effective diversity program around. That's not to say that diversity training at all, but this particular version of it is the least effective. These trainings have a price tag that is astronomical. After the death of George Floyd and the ensuing riots, the grifters who run these diversity workshops ranked a $3.4 billion in 2020. And according to Report Linker, this industry is expected to reach $17.2 billion by 2027. Although Wong does mention the fact that DEI trainings are a highly profitable industry, her leading theory posits the notion that it's because these trainings are mandatory that uh, they aren't effective. So, um, again, hoping that that will be revisited and more effective approaches uh, might be reconsidered. Well, the Federal Aviation Administration said Thursday that a contractor working with the agency accidentally triggered the system. That outage, recall, about a week or two ago, um, that suspended thousands of flights. It was inadvertent by a contractor. Well, the unnamed company unintentionally removed files in the notice to air missions system, which sends real time information about potential hazards to pilots on their routes. Well, the agency has so far found no evidence of a cyber attack or malicious intent, the FAA told the publication. The agency, and that's the Wall Street Journal, the agency has also reportedly fixed deficiencies in the system and adapted it to make it capable of withstanding such errors in the future. The FAA's initial assessment of the problem last week was that a data file was damaged by personnel who uh, who failed to follow procedures. More than 2,500 flights within Uh, and into and out of the United States were delayed as a result of the system failure, according to FlightAware. 
The outage caused the FAA to pause all domestic departures for nearly two hours. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with Kimberly Swenson. She's the director of Pathways Clinic in Washougal, Washington. They're doing great work. We'll tell you all about it. And if you happen to live in the area, it's a great uh, organization to consider supporting. Golden handcuffs, that's what they're calling it. California Democrats are planning to tax people who fled to red states. Mm. Kick in the face, service members fired over the vaccine mandates are being forced to pay uh, bonuses back. And parents' rights, a teacher said she was fired for voicing concerns for her own children. Unyielding, Governor Gavin Newsom is clinging to his TikTok account despite bans on the use of TikTok in the state. And a new GOP senator, former Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts, was sworn into the U.S. Senate on Monday to take the place of former Senator Ben Sass, who retired last year. Ricketts, a Republican, will serve for two years before the special Senate election is held in 2024. An election for a full six-year Senate term would be held in 2026. He was appointed last year by Republican Governor Jim Fillin. Chase Bank is locking up some New York City ATM locations early, citing rising crime and vagrancy. And it's embarrassing. An ABC News boss is under fire as scandals haunt the Disney-owned network. DeSantis University, an LGBTQ-friendly college, has some, uh, some worry that it will be dominated by, wait for it, conservatives. MSNBC host Mike Brzezinski and Joe Scarborough, um, I should say Mika, uh, Brzezinski and Joe Scarborough appeared frustrated while pressing Ian Sams, spokesperson for the White House Counsel's Office, about President Biden's document scandal as he repeatedly dodged their questions. The pair asked the same question 34 times. Kamala Harris takes heat for admitting the right to life when citing the Declaration of Independence and a $115 billion burden, businesses, uh, taxes, are rising just as the U.S. economy is heading into choppy water. Well, Democrats are growing exasperated with President Biden after additional classified documents were found. The Democratic allies responded with exasperation and growing concern to news over the weekend that FBI agents had recovered more secret documents from Biden's home in Delaware. It's the second such discovery since his lawyers declared the search had concluded. The White House has so far declined to say whether the Department of Justice will be will or should conduct a search of the president's residence in um, Rehoboth, uh, Delaware, for classified documents, which legal experts said falls short of the Biden administration's claim of transparency and raises more doubts about the possibility of criminal activity. Meanwhile, the uh, former vice president in the Trump administration discovered he had some classified documents. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm claims President Biden would veto the GOP bill aimed at limiting his authority to drain the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And a Yuma, Arizona supervisor is warning of total collapse if illegal immigration continues. The border city is at a breaking point with the unprecedented flow of migrants leaving the community at the brink of collapse and hospitals and food banks overloaded. Yuma County Supervisor Jonathan Lines slammed the administration for its handling of the border crisis and said his country will crumble. Rather, his county will crumble as it uh, can't support the cascading flow of migrants and they have no help. Customs and border officials say some five million migrants have crossed over the U.S. southern border since January of last year. 
when the Biden administration took over the White House. The San Francisco reparations scheme would cost $110 billion plus. This takes uh, go woke and go broke to a whole new level. The National Review reports that an advisory committee's recommendation that San Francisco pay out hefty reparations to longtime residents uh, could cost the city at least $110 billion at even a conservative estimate. Men and women um, queued outside a municipal office in order to have their racial origins examined in this city, as well as um, personal documents. They clutched uh, the results of DNA tests and fading family photographs. The FDA is looking to update COVID vaccinations to once per year. The administration, Food and Drug, advisors will meet Thursday to discuss simplifying the COVID vaccination schedule, allowing most people to get the currently available booster, regardless of how many doses they had received before that. The FDA proposal, experts say, would greatly simplify the COVID vaccination schedule in the U.S., aligning it more closely with the annual flu shot. In another similarly A similarity to the flu shot, the FDA is considering whether the COVID vaccine should be updated at least once a year based on what strains are in circulation. The Baltimore County School District is waging war on merit. A battle is brewing in the Baltimore County School District in Maryland this month. They're currently working on the district's budget for fiscal year 2024. The proposed budget would eliminate three of the four teaching positions currently assigned to the program. Parents have pointed out that students who qualify for the program, enhance their chances of being accepted to prominent universities, and one teacher is simply not enough to handle all the qualifying students. The idea that everyone can have an equal outcome has been tried again and again in failed socialist countries, and when the uh, left succeeds in ending merit in a school, you can be sure the rest of the woke ideas parents abhor have already taken over the curriculum. A war game exposed munition stockpiles facing peril in a prolonged conflict, The U.S. defense industrial base is not adequately prepared for the international security environment that now exists. In a major regional conflict, such as a war with China in the Taiwan Strait, the U.S. use of munitions would likely exceed the current stockpiles of the U.S. Department of Defense. According to the results of a series of CSIS war games, the United States would likely run out of some munitions, such as long-range precision-guided munitions, in less than one week in a Taiwan Strait conflict. The Wall Street Journal weighs in, writing that the U.S. has committed to sending Ukraine more than $27 billion in military equipment and supplies, everything that helped everything from helmets to Humvees since Russia's invasion of the country last year. But the protracted conflict has also exposed the strategic peril facing the U.S. as weapons inventories fall to a low level and defense companies aren't equipped to replenish them rapidly. Spotify is the latest tech company to announce job cuts. Spotify is planning to cut about 6% of its employees, or around 600 employees. Joining a slew of technology companies from Amazon.com Inc. to Meta Platforms Inc. and announcing job cuts to lower costs, most departments will be impacted across the company. Spotify said in the filing that uh, Don Ostroff, chief content and advertising business officer, will leave the company as part of a broader reorganization. The stock has lost 58% of its value since the end of 2021. A trans activist group has uh, is calling to cancel Aretha Franklin's hit song, Natural Woman. Apparently, that's offensive. One alleged activist group in Norway is calling for the song, the 1968 hit, 
a, a natural woman to be removed from both Apple Music and Spotify after they deemed its lyrics offensive. The Transculture Mindfulness Alliance took to Twitter last week to condemn the ballot, citing that it has ignited harm against transgender women, who are actually men. Aretha Franklin's song perpetuates a multiple harmful anti-trans stereotype. It was, of course, recorded in 1968. There's no such thing as a natural woman, they go on to say. By the way, I am a natural woman. The song has helped inspire acts of harm against transgender women, they went on to say. Well, Biden's troublesome new chief of staff, the current White House chief of staff, Ron Klain, is headed for the exit and a move that some speculate has much to do with Joe Biden's growing scandal over classified documents. Klain may say the proverbial writing on the wall, at least as it pertains to the potential 2024 reelection bid, which is significant. Klain has been widely viewed as the real power behind the scenes. Into his uh, vacated place steps Biden's former covid response chief, Jeff Zients. Uh, this move has many conservatives worried that he will uh, his record directing the administration's pandemic response reveals the kind of totalitarian instinct that refuses to change course or admit wrong. Based on his social media postings, Zeins has little problem effectively wishing death on Americans who disagree with his views. For example, in December of 21, he tweeted for the unvaccinated, you're looking at a winter of severe illness and death for yourselves, your family and the hospitals you may soon overwhelm. Pushing unconstitutional COVID vaccine mandates onto Americans was something he was fully behind. In short, uh, like Klain, he becomes the real power behind Biden. The country can expect two more years of hard left edicts and insufferable inflexibility from the White House. More American workers are saying no to unions. Americans continue to sour on unions as the percentage of U.S. workers who are members has dropped to its lowest level since government rec- uh, records began 40 years ago. Despite the president's pushing unions, the vast majority of American workers aren't signing up. According to data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics in 2022, just 10.1 percent of workers were members of a union, down from 10.3 percent the prior year. The data shows a continuation of a long-running trend of American workers eschewing labor unions dating back to 1983, when 20.1% of workers were members of a union. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. And in the second hour, a conversation with Kimberly Swinson, director of Pathways Clinic in Washougal, Washington. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, a conversation with Kimberly Swenson. She's the director of Pathways Clinic in Washougal, Washington. It's a family and pregnancy resource clinic. We'll tell you all about it, the work they're doing, the challenges they face, and how you can come alongside and support them in their work in Washougal, Washington. We'll also take a look at a new study that says Americans are losing their generosity. Well, is that true or just struggling to compete with the inflation rate and the price of eggs? Anyway, that's coming up later in the program as well. Well, according to a recent, um, recently released report from the Government Accountability Office, at least $60 billion, that's with a B, of the roughly $878 billion the federal government redistributed to American taxpayers to unemployment insurance programs during the pandemic has been stolen by fraudsters. $60 billion. The GAO further noted that current measures and estimates do not reflect the full extent of the fraud. 
but they do provide important insights on fraud risks, end quote. Indeed, the Labor Department's tally of unemployment fraud comes in at $163 billion, but it's likely even higher than that, according to um, CEO Blake Hall, who believes the total fraud to be nearly half of the government payouts, some $400 billion. Well, House Republicans have been repeatedly calling for hearings to look into claims of massive stimulus fraud for the past two years, but they were rebuffed by Democrats until now, at least in the House. As Representative Jason Smith stated, American families whose wages have eroded under the president's inflation crisis have watched as hundreds of billions of their hard-earned tax dollars were lost to criminal activity and fraud because uh, overseers refused to acknowledge the problem and repeatedly rejected efforts to put basic safeguards in place to protect against this activity. We'll see what happens next. Governor DeSantis is fighting back against the White House, uh, defending Florida's uh, rejection of race-based lessons, CRT more specifically, that includes a number of elements that have nothing to do with race, but do have everything to do with political ideology. A judge has temporarily blocked an Illinois assault weapons ban, and Vimeo has canceled Dead Name, a documentary highlighting the horrors of transgender ideology and its impact on families. Eminem has tossed its spokes candies in the in the garbage after woke characters caused a backlash. Al Gore amassed three hundred and thirty million climate uh, million dollar climate fortune by terrifying everyone. And in a bit of humor, a batch of classified documents have been found on a Walmart clearance shelf. You know the secret recipe that uh, the Colonel Colonel Sanders somehow his was never leaked. Anyway, on this day in history, 1848, James W. Marshall, a New Jersey native, discovers a gold nugget in Sutter's Mill in Northern California, helping launch the gold rush of 1849. 1942, the Roberts Commission places much of the blame for America's lack of preparedness for Imperial Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor on Rear Admiral Husband E. Kimmel and Lieutenant General Walter C. Short, the Navy and the Army commanders. 1965, Winston Churchill dies in London at age 90. 1984, Apple Computer begins selling its first Macintosh model, which boasts a built-in 9-inch monochrome display, a clock rate of 8 megahertz and 128K uh, of RAM, 128. The sale starts two days after the company's 1984 commercial airs on CBS during Super Bowl XVIII, you figure it out. The only national um, airing for the spot, uh, for the TV spot. 1985, the Space Shuttle Discovery is launched from Cape Canaveral on the first secret all-military shuttle mission. 1993, retired Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall dies in Bethesda, Maryland at age 84. 2003, former Pennsylvania Governor Tom Ridge is sworn in as the first secretary of the new Department of Homeland Security. He had uh, served as Homeland Security Advisor until the agency was launched. 2013, on this day in history, Defense Secretary Leon Panetta announces the lifting of a ban on women serving in combat. 2018, former sports doctor Larry Nasser, who had admitted molesting some of the nation's top gymnasts for years under the guise of medical treatment, is sentenced to 40 to 175 years in prison. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, scientists in China announced that they have used the cloning technique that produced Dolly the Sheep to create healthy monkeys, the first such achievement in primates. 
Well, the worst part of the Roberts court's failure to find and punish those responsible for the most egregious breach of confidentiality in the history of the Supreme Court isn't the corrosive damage it's done to the culture of trust within the high court. It's the certainty that such a breach will happen again, and it will happen again, perhaps sooner than we think. After all, the unprecedented leak of Justice Samuel Alito's draft Dobbs decision was widely successful. It raised awareness of the monumental decision to come, and it gave pro-abortion activists plenty of lead time to mount their campaign against the decision. From timely op-eds to congressional grandstanding to massive fundraising to voter mobilization to terrorizing justices with everything from protests in front of their homes to a near assassination of Justice Brett Kavanaugh from all of this, we can say with certainty that the leak was a resounding success and without any accountability, without any consequences having been meted out. What other possible message might uh, further activists take? Well, uh, whatever efforts. Well, for example, the 531 conservative court may well strike down affirmative action this year. And wouldn't it be helpful for those on the left to mount a campaign in advance of the decision to denounce the systematic racism of white supremacy inherent within the Supreme Court? Perhaps that sort of preemptive action could even help Chief Justice John Roberts peel off one or two of the more conservative justices to help chart a middle course that uh, preserves the current racially discriminatory status quo in higher education admissions. Last May, at the time of the leak, Roberts called it an egregious breach of trust, and he called upon the marshal of the court to find out who leaked the document to Politico. Investigators conducted more than 120 interviews of nearly 100 employees, all of them, wait for it, denied disclosing the opinion, the court said. The marshal didn't say how many of these employees were uh, harshly interrogated, but the guess is not many. The absence of any mention of FBI involvement in the case, though, leads us to wonder just how serious Chief Justice Roberts is about solving the case. According to Fox News, some three dozen law clerks were the initial focus of the investigation, and some of them even voluntarily turned over their phones for examination. Stunningly, as the report noted, several court employees acknowledged that uh, they told their spouses or partners about the draft opinion and the court's preliminary vote count, which was, of course, a gross violation of the court's confidentiality rules. Per the um, Marshall's report, the investigation team has been unable to identify a person responsible by a preponderance of the evidence. We're pleased to report, though, the following vote of confidence from the high court. The Marshall and her team will continue to have our full support. Despite this, the report's closing paragraph reads rather unreassuringly. In time, continued investigation and analysis may produce additional leads that could identify the source of the disclosure. Whether or not any individual is ever identified as the source of the disclosure, the court should take action to create and implement better policies to govern the handling of court-sensitive information and determine the best IT systems for securing and collab- security and collaboration. Translated, we'll keep at it, but don't hold your breath. All this bad news is set against the backdrop of a weekend that otherwise portends great news and glorious celebration, the annual March for Life in Washington. It's the 50th anniversary of Roe versus Wade and the first march since the decision's overturn. Well, last year's long overdue Dobbs decision began saving lives almost immediately. And indeed, as Nate Jackson uh, joyously wrote at the time, babies win. Sadly, we don't know what happened in the court, and it will very likely happen again. 
Well, coming up, a conversation with Kimberly Swenson. She is the CEO of Pathways Clinic in Washougal, Washington. It is a family and women's uh, pregnancy clinic. And we'll talk with her about the work they're doing, the challenges they face, and how you might support their efforts. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. As you probably know, Sunday was Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. The anniversary of the infamous Roe versus Wade decision has come and gone. And a lot of attention is being focused on the practice of abortion and the pro-life movement, and continuing our effort to put a spotlight on the subject. I've invited Kimberly Swenson with Pathways Clinic in Washougal to join me. Um, The uh, the Pathways is a pregnancy resource center, more accurately, a family and pregnancy resource center in Washougal. We'll talk with her about the work they are doing and what the future looks like in Washougal, Washington. Kimberly Swenson, thank you so much for joining us. I am. It's my pleasure, Georgine. Thanks for having me. Well, give us a little bit of your background. How did you begin in this kind of work? Um, well, I, it's a God thing, actually. I was a stay-at-home mom for many years, very blessed to be so. And um, heading back into the workforce, a friend let me know about a position with a different pregnancy resource center in Clark County. And I worked there for um, several years, and uh, the position at Pathways uh, came open, and I was actually recommended for it. And um, that's where God wanted me to be, so that's where I'm at. Well, obedience is a beautiful thing, (laughs) whatever form that takes, whatever God is calling you to. For our listeners who are unfamiliar with Pathways uh, Family and Pregnancy Resource Center, uh, tell us a little bit about your work, how long you've been there, and um, what you are doing in that part of the, the world. Sure. Um, Pathways is a family and pregnancy resource center. Um, we started in Camas, Washington. Um, will be 29 years ago uh, this October, and um, we've grown um, year over year, expanding our services. Uh, started out with just pregnancy tests and graduated to ultrasounds. Um, And this year, um, we are adding um, some mental health services and STD testing and um, growing, just uh, seeing more and more people every day. We um, provide women with pregnancy tests and ultrasound to introduce them to their babies. And um, the world would like you to think that's where it stops. We want you to have your baby and good luck to you. But we actually walk beside women uh, and men families for as long as they have a need. We have... Um, social services and resources um, to help families throughout throughout their family life. Now, as you know, pregnancy resource centers in general have been villainized of late and made out to be something that they are not. You can't vouch for every one of them because we don't know. But in terms of what you all are doing and what uh, the pregnancy resource centers in this community are doing, uh, it really is a gift to our community. Uh, Have you um, been confronted by challenges to just your right to exist and to serve uh, the women in your community? Um, While we have been very lucky uh, in our community, we we have a very supportive community in Camas and Washougal in East Clark County. We haven't had any um, physical damage or attacks, but we have had fake reviews left by people that we've never seen on our websites and social media. And um, big tech now has has it out for all pregnancy mm-hmm. resource centers 
Um, you, you can't find us on Google very easily, um, so it's hard for women to, to find our services. Um, and uh, other um, big tech companies um, have cut off any um, nonprofit programs that we might get discounted um, software or, or other services that um, almost all other nonprofits are eligible to have. So it's gotten a little more expensive and a little harder to reach our women, but um, we're 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 doing it, and we're we're not going to stop. Well, that's disappointing. It's frustrating, but it's not surprising. But I appreciate your perseverance and your faithfulness in ministering to women in the community because they desperately need what you are providing. And as difficult as others are trying to make it for you, you continue. And you're meeting with people, men and women, families who need um, need your services. And I want to commend you for that. Uh, one of the things I want to emphasize, I wanted to emphasize is the fact that this is no cost and confidential uh, work that you're doing. You're you're somehow managing to provide uh, the services at no cost to your clients. Yes, that's correct. We um, we don't tar- charge our clients for anything that happens at the clinic, whether it be material supplies or medical services, uh, and that is how it's going to remain um, regardless. Um, we don't accept any government funds, um, or we don't bill insurance. Everything that we do is funded 100% by donations from um, some local companies and some very generous donors and churches in our community. Well, I appreciate that God is still providing the resource uh, that you need in order to bless the women in your community. When a a woman, a teenage girl comes to you, what happens when she walks through the door? What what might she expect? She can expect to be greeted with um, love and compassion, uh, 100%. Um, One of the, the most comments we hear most often about um, people who walk through our door is, is this is not what I expected. It's not mm. clinical. We have, we have one room in the clinic that it's clinical and that's the ultrasound room because it has to be everything else. Um, it's a very calming atmosphere and it's, it's just a beautiful location. Um, the, the, the people who came before me uh, did a wonderful job creating the atmosphere at the clinic. And so any person, any woman who comes through our doors can expect to be greeted on her level, um, to be listened to, and to be honored and respected. And um, we're, we're going to talk about anything that she wants to talk about. And that's all we'll talk about. We'll we'll answer her questions. We will give her um, medically accurate, 100% truthful information about her pregnancy and her situation. And unlike you read um, in government listings and the newspaper and here on TV and see out in social media, there are no ugly pictures. There's no shaming. There there is no. Um, there's there's none of that. It, it's it's a 100% truthful conversation about her circumstances, answering her questions um, from her point of view, and we we just want every person that comes in to make a fully informed decision. There's there's no judgment. 
Um, we want every woman that comes in our doors to choose life, but we know that that's not mm-hmm. going to happen. And we know that God's plan is perfect and he brought her to us for a reason. So um, we're there to provide the information she needs to follow God's plan. And if she agrees, we'll pray with her. And if she agrees, we'll present the gospel to her. But that's completely 100% up to her. It's not like you see in social media. We don't do those things. Yeah. I know so often a woman will come. She's abortion minded. She has the test. The pregnancy is confirmed and she is going to move forward with the abortion. If someone has had an abortion, uh, comes to regret it. How do you greet them? Do they come back? Is there a resource available to help them through what um, will very likely become a regret? There, there absolutely is. We actually have, um, it's up to four now, different um, abortion um, recovery programs that that we refer to. And we have one that we'll meet in the clinic when we have someone who have someone who wants to go through it. Um, there, there's something for everyone. Not everyone is ready for an all-in Bible study. Mm-hmm. We have those, but not everybody is is ready for that. And this younger generation, um, Gen Z, would most of the time prefer not to meet in person. So we have online options where it's still a, a, a guided healing process, but it's done at their comfort level. And they have the option to come in or meet with someone outside of the clinic. We're talking about Pathways Clinic, Family and Pregnancy Resource Center. They offer no-cost and confidential um, help for women and families there. We'll talk more about that in just a few moments, but I do need to take a quick break. I want to remind you that they're located on E Street in Washougal, Washington, and you can uh, go to their website, which is very informative. There's a blog there, and their services are explained, pathwaysclinic.care. Uh, so you can uh, find out more there as well. They're open Monday through Friday, and their uh, open times are posted as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'll continue our conversation with Kimberly Swinson in just a few minutes. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Kimberly Swenson. She's the director of Pathways Clinic in Washougal, Washington. Now, the name Pathways Clinic uh, suggests that Pathways is just that. One of the criticisms that uh, we're hearing is that these are, in quotes, fake clinics. Can you describe in what way Pathways is a clinic that uh, when women come for information about their pregnancies, uh, what they can expect? Absolutely. Um, Pathways Clinic, we have um, a a licensed medical professional. Um, She is an advanced ARNP who is our medical director, and she guides every medical service that Pathways Clinic provides. And every service that we provide, um, be it uh, a pregnancy test or ultrasound or the upcoming um, STD testing and and mental health um, services that we're going to provide, is provided by a licensed medical professional. Um, Everybody is trained um, by licensed medical professionals to do exactly what they do. Um, Every woman that comes into the clinic will meet with a care advocate first. And that's just to go over um, intake paperwork and, and get their demographics and um, provide a, a sympathetic ear to listen to their story and their situation. And then they'll meet with a medical professional to run their pregnancy test and uh, do their ultrasound. Um, 
we we're not a fake clinic at all. We don't provide um, any services that we don't um, advertise and are, and are not covered by a medical professional. Well, and I appreciate that. I I'm embarrassed to have to ask the question, but these days you do have to ask the question because there's so much misinformation. I wanted to give you an opportunity to give a straight answer. Uh, to that question. We're talking about Pathways Clinic, Family and Pregnancy Resource Center, and you guys do amazing work uh, in the uh, in the community. I would imagine, depending on the age and the circumstance of the individual coming to Pathways, um, that the, the first question is, am I pregnant? Um, how do you deal with someone who is uh, unprepared for pregnancy, maybe doesn't have much understanding of what that means, other than at some point in the future there's going to be a baby. How do you manage those who have uh, questions um, and and don't necessarily know what to expect? Um, we we do our best. It, it's becoming um, blaringly clear with with every day that passes that uh, the younger generation is not getting accurate biological information in their their high school and middle school classes because we have young women come in who have honestly no idea how the biology of getting pregnant works Mm. um and and so all of those medical questions are answered by our nurses so that they can provide an accurate and um easy to understand um quick overview of biology and pregnancy and and field development and and how exactly a pregnancy works so um it's very often that we we have young women come in um the day of or the day after an encounter with their boyfriend or or um significant other and just not understand that we 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 can't know yet and Mm -hmm. so um being able to talk to them at their level and not being um, condemning or in any way um, helps create trust um, so that they know that they can come back if they need to. And they walk away with, with a better education and understanding of, of life and how it works. I know one of the growing concerns is the, the chemical abortion that's becoming more easily accessible, the two-pill chemical abortion regimen. Uh, commonly referred to as a medication or uh, medical abortion by the abortion industry. It, can, it consists of a couple of drugs. How is that um, impacting now or how might it impact the work that you're doing moving forward? It's it's a very scary time right now. It wasn't very long ago um, that the FDA uh, had some really strong restrictions on the use of those two drugs. Um, and now, especially since COVID and with the attention that's, that's on this huge topic, um, the FDA has decided that there are almost no restrictions on these two drugs and our local pharmacies are able to dispense them um, with a prescription. And um, it's very easy for someone to go online and and Google or search um, abortion pill and have it mailed to their door without ever seeing a doctor face to face and without having um, an ultrasound to know exactly how far along they are because those pills only work up until 10 weeks and past 10 weeks they don't work. Um, it's very often that um, pills can cause an incomplete abortion. 
Um, women don't get the full facts of what's going to happen to them um, after they take the pills because they are actually going to go through labor. Um, that's the only way uh, to remove a pregnancy without having surgery is to go through labor. And it's very much something they do on their own in the privacy of their own homes um, very often. Um, and this is directly from an abortion pill provider's website. It's, it's not made up. They say if you have a complication and need to go to the emergency room, you don't have to tell them that you've taken the pills. You can just tell them you've had, um, you're having a miscarriage, hmm. which, which is very scary. Yes. Um, I mean, pe- people have allergic reactions to medications all the time, especially if it's something you've not taken before. And, and one of the other things that um, a lot of people don't realize is when you, you Google abortion on the internet and you look at statistics, um, the statistics that you see show the abortion rate going down in the United States and around the world. That's because they're only counting surgical abortions. That does not include abortion pills. And many states like California don't provide any abortion statistics into those numbers at all. Mm. So it's not the panacea that we're being led to believe um, that it is. It's very concerning and we need to be aware of it. Um, Find out if your pharmacy is participating. And in many cases, they're independently owned and they might be um, subject to influence if you if you communicate with them your thoughts on the subject. I did note that with the March for Life that uh, took place, I believe, last Friday, there was an event that took place that most people are unaware of. It's called Babies Go to Congress. It's a luncheon in the Russell Senate office building. Babies and toddlers, of course, they're not very commonly seen in the U.S. Senate. But on Thursday, uh, one day before the 50th March for Life, moms and little ones arrived on Capitol Hill to explain how pro-life pregnancy resource centers and maternity homes help them in their time of greatest need. Uh, one of the uh, women who was there said that she thought if uh, these uh, the pregnancy resource center that she had availed herself of had not been present, she probably would not be alive and certainly not there with her child. So I appreciate that there are national efforts to communicate with lawmakers the value of what you provide, uh, what you do in service of women at no um, no benefit to yourself, at no cost to them, which is just a gift and a blessing that you extend uh, into the community. So I'm grateful that there was a, a an occasion, an event that uh, was positive and accurate in terms of what pregnancy resource centers are doing around the country and certainly reflected the kind of work that you're doing at Pathways Clinic in Washougal. Yeah, it, it was it was really nice to see. I, I love hearing those stories and and through Pathways and our events, being able to share the stories of women um, that have come to our clinic as well. So it, it's it's just a blessing to see um, women grow and and blossom as soon as they let go of the fear and the pull that the world has on them, and to to see love bloom. I mean, there there is nothing like the love of a, a mother for her child, and it's it's just such a sad thing that that. Um, that's being downplayed and and taken away from women um, by the thousands every single day. Yeah, yeah. It's a deliberate campaign of misinformation. And yet somehow the work that you do, the need for it is penetrating even uh, even through that. 
Um, how can we pray for you at Pathways um, as you continue to move forward? As we mentioned, you don't receive funds from any government source, from any source other than donations that are made directly to you in order to minister to these women. How can we pray for you and how can we support the work of Pathways Clinic? Oh, uh, so many ways. We um, we are currently praying over adding a second clinic, uh, a little more accessible toward the center of Clark County, because the need is great. Um, it, it is just out there. There are so many, so many women um, that are hurting and families that are hurting, and we want to be able to reach every one of them. So we're we're currently praying over that. Um, we need to add staff and volunteers. Um, for our current clinic, as well as um, a new clinic, should it come to be. And of course, that all takes financing. Um, So, and above all, um, just protection over these women and uh, their babies. And and for the folks who work at um, pro-life ministries around the world, um, they're under attack from from groups and they're they're under attack from the enemy. Um, you you get to be part of an amazing ministry and doing God's work. Um, the enemy takes notice, and so just just protection for all of those involved and all of those who who want to see um, see this grow for God's kingdom. Amen. Well, Kimberly, I want to thank you for your leadership at Pathways. Uh, your staff and volunteers are doing great work and. Uh, while you're not going to be um, written up in the Seattle Times or the Oregonian, we recognize the value of what you're doing, uh, the need for it in our community. And God has taken note of every sacrifice that you and others are making to minister to women and their families. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you, Georgine. Thank you so much for having me. God bless. Again, Pathways Clinic is in Washougal, Washington. They're located on um, E Street in Washougal. You can find more information at pathwaysclinic.care. And uh, they have all the important information as well as their address and phone number uh, there as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. A recently released Gallup poll has found that, well, the vast majority of Americans fear that 2023 will be a difficult economic year for their bottom line. Nearly 80% of adults believe it's going to be tough to make ends meet as they continue to struggle under 40-year high inflation and the looming prospect of recession after nearly three years of Washington's budget-busting spending spree. Like Washington's longtime spending problem, a trend that appears to show no sign of ending anytime soon is the decline in philanthropy. Now, when I'm giving, I don't necessarily think of it as philanthropy. I think of those people who give Huge amounts of resource, but the number of American households donating to charity has declined from 66 percent in 2000 down to 50 percent in 2018, making matters worse. A um, uh, recent um, report from the Fundraising Effectiveness Project observed a collapse in the number of uh, one time donors. Some seven percent fewer people gave less than five hundred dollars and 17 percent fewer gave less than one hundred dollars annually. Well, that drop occurred in just one year. And while the dollar amount might appear rather insignificant, it isn't. People who give small amounts account for 98% of all donors. Also, while the downward pressure on the economy 
certainly has had a negative impact on the number of Americans giving. This uh, decrease in giving is not a new trend. As um, the nation has become culturally more irreligious, that has had a direct impact on America's famed generous spirit. In 2004, 46% of American households gave money to churches or other religious organizations. 46%. As of 2018, that percentage has dropped to 29% of households. Younger Americans in general are less inclined toward philanthropic endeavors. And while they um, may loudly express their opinions and virtue signal on social media, their support for various social justice and philanthropic causes, they're less motivated to actually put up their money or give of their time toward various charitable causes. So the follow-up question to a lot of the loud protests we're hearing is, what are you doing? Meanwhile, the overall amount of charitable giving from a strictly monetary consideration has remained robust, thanks primarily to the philanthropic investments of wealthy donors and big foundation organizations. Sadly, an attitude of leave it to the rich seems to be growing in the minds of many. Well, this kind of often unintentional, inconsiderate or self-centered thinking ironically serves to rob individuals of a kind of joy and fulfillment that's only found in giving freely to others in need. It may also demonstrate generally an eroding of our nation's cultural and social values as fewer people appear to trust organizations or uh, emphasize um, uh, empathize rather with the needs these charitable causes seek to meet. In other words, it may indicate a growing cultural apathy that will have unfortunate uh, implications going down the road. It is a sad commentary on our culture. Well, in other news across the country, there's a silent frustration brewing about an age old practice that many say is getting out of hand. Tipping used to be an option. Now it's a little less of an option and more of an obligation. Some fed up consumers are posting rants on social media complaining about tip requests at drive throughs, for example. Um, They say that they're tired of being asked to leave a gratuity for a... um, a muffin or a simple cup of coffee at their neighborhood bakery. What's next, they wonder? Are we going to be tipping our doctors and dentists too? Well, as more businesses adopt digital payment methods, customers are automatically being prompted to leave a gratuity, many times as high as 30% at places they normally wouldn't. And some say it's become more frustrating as the price of items has skyrocketed due to inflation, which eased to 6.5% in December, but still remains painfully high. Suddenly, these screens are at every establishment we encounter. They're popping up online as well as online orders. And I fear that there's no end. That's what one etiquette expert, Thomas Farley, who considers the whole thing somewhat of an invasion, has to say. Well, unlike tip jars that shoppers um, can easily ignore if they don't have spare change, experts say that the digital requests can produce social pressure and they're more difficult to bypass. And your generosity or lack thereof can be laid bare for anyone close enough to glance at the screen, including the workers themselves. Uh, one of them, Dylan Schenker, 38-year-old, who earns about $400 a month in tips, which provided a helpful supplement to his $15 an hour wage as a barista in Philadelphia at a cafe located inside a restaurant. Most of those tips come from uh, consumers who order coffee drinks or uh, interact with the cafe for other things, such as carry out orders. The gratuity helps cover his monthly rent and eases some of his burdens while he attends graduate school and juggles his job. So there's no question that the folks who are benefiting from the gratuities can use the money. 
Everything's expensive for everybody. Well, he says that it's hard to sympathize with consumers who are able to afford pricey coffee drinks, but complain about tipping. Now, what he may not recognize is they, it's all they can do to afford the pricey drink. And the drink with the tip is outside of their price range. And he often feels demoralized when people don't leave behind anything extra, especially if they're regulars. Well, again, they might be struggling to afford anything beyond this treat. Well, tipping is about making sure the people who are performing that service for you are getting paid what they are owed. One thought the employer was responsible for that. He says he's been working in the service industry for roughly 18 years. So maybe there's a difference of opinion, a misunderstanding about who's responsible for what. Well, is tipping out of control? Many consumers say yes, and there's frustration brewing over the ever-presence of tipping as more businesses adopt digital payment methods. Well, traditionally, consumers have taken pride in being good tippers at places like restaurants, which typically pay their workers lower than minimum wage in expectation that they'll make up the difference in tips. That's more of an expectation. But um, academies who studied the topic say that many consumers are now feeling irritated by automatic tip requests at coffee shops and other counter service eateries where tipping has not typically been expected. Workers make at least the minimum wage and service is usually very limited. People don't like unsolicited advice, says one marketing professor at Murray State University who studies tipping. They don't like to be asked for things, especially at the wrong time. Some of the requests can also come from odd places. One 35-year-old who works as a supervisor at a utility company in Pennsylvania said even her mortgage company has been asking for tips lately. Typically, she's happy to leave a gratuity at a restaurant and sometimes at coffee shops and other fast food places when the service is good. But she said she believes consumers shouldn't be asked to tip nearly everywhere they go and it shouldn't be something they're expected to do. Well, it makes you feel bad. You feel like you have uh, have to do it because they're asking you to do it. But then you have to think about the position that puts people in. And it's rather uncomfortable, uh, uncomfortable. Well, in the uh, book, Emily Post's Etiquette, and I'm not sure who still reads that, but the authors, Lizzie Post and Daniel Post, uh, they advise consumers to tip on ride shares. That makes sense, like Uber and Lyft as well as food and beverage, including alcohol. But they also write that it's up to each person to choose how much to tip at a a cafe or at a takeout food service, and that consumers shouldn't feel embarrassed about choosing the lowest option available. Well, these days, the lowest option oftentimes isn't low enough. And uh, because it's digital, there's not an option other than. So is is tipflation becoming a problem? Well, it might be something worth having a conversation about in the culture. Well, we are out of time. I do want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show a part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.